We're on the road with Mickey, we're gonna have some fun. Regardless of the rain or sun, our trip has just begun. So buckle up, let's go, we're about to start the show. And maybe if you like us, you'll see where else we'll go. Hey everyone, I'm Mike. And she's Sophie. And we have a very special guest with us today. The famous, the one and only, Ira David Wood III. Everybody give him a wonderful, warm welcome. We call that a round of applause. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and we never forget Grogu. Say yes. hi, Grogu. He's our mascot. Yep, he's the silent partner. Mm -hmm. And we're on the road with Mickey. This is episode 141 for October 10th, 2022. And today we are interviewing our very special guest, Ira David Wood. So welcome, David. Thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. And today is a day that is filled with surprises. Nobody knows what's going to happen. What day was that on the Mickey Mouse Club? Oh, my gosh. Oh, you, you gosh. Hey, I have no idea. <laughs> Adventureland Day. <laughs> now, that's going to be shame. the next. Right off the bat. <laughs> <laughs> that's going to be the next trivia that I learned for our games, Daddy. <laughs> okay. I remember those shows, man. I was, I was watching them when I was little. That's cool. That's that weird. Is so you cool. seem very young to me. God bless you. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we are um, going to skip our cheddar from the big cheese this week, but we have a whole slew of questions. And as always, we want to thank you once again for joining us. And Sophie has the first question because um, she came up with a really good one. So. Yes. As we all know, you are a very talented actor. And I love watching you in the Christmas Carol almost every year that I can go. But I have to ask you, what inspired you to get into the theater? What sort of was the birth of your passion for it? When I was in kindergarten, I had to sing the song, Somebody Loves Me, to a little girl I could not abide. <laughs> and when it was over, everybody just thought I was in love with her. So I figured, hey, you know, this is kind of fun. I can, I can be something that I'm not. And I think uh, when I was 12 years old, my father passed away. And um, I sort of retreated into a world of make-believe. It was a safe world where I was in control. And I could be other people. And um, my imagination was out of bounds. I was, yeah. you know... Uh, would go into that world, and I was safe there. So I think that's one of the reasons that it just seemed natural to mm -hmm. to move into acting, to move into theater, and I've never looked back. No, you haven't, and it's been yeah a long time. And and I mean, for for those of you that are listening that aren't in the local Raleigh Durham area, um, you need to look him up because Ira David Wood's career spans decades and the shows that he's put on are like local icons i mean we're talking to a living legend today so oh my yeah. God. so it is it is such an honor for us to have him on the show and 
and I'm so excited that we're able to make this happen. Um, yes. I you know you. normally we have our, our, our third partner is Brenda, but she's on vacation in New England. She is, she's gone whale watching and, mm-hmm. and eating lobster. And, uh, just, and hopefully you know, the hurricane isn't messing with her plans. Yeah, I don't think it is. Um, no. But she, but she's having so much more fun. Than, well, even than a rainy day, here, so. even a rainy day in New England is a nice day. You're right. I, you're I right. I love that. I, when I was in college, I considered moving there or at least going up to visit. And I decided not to because I thought if I ever got there, I'd never want to come back. It's just so beautiful. The seasons in New England are breathtaking. I do like myself a white Christmas. However, I'll leave that to you. I'm going down to Florida at the next opportunity. <laughs> oh, good, good. <laughs> All and right. Hopefully, and hopefully it's still there. Oh, yeah. They've well, hey, it will be. Floridians it are a different breed. Oh, they are. They are a different yeah. breed. They are indeed. Okay. All right. So, then. how long, David, have you actually been? in theater do you have like a any sort of calendar entry in your head of i've been doing it for 50 years or anything yeah when i was in junior high school we didn't have a drama department in in my school uh i remember that i took uh uh pose the mask of the red death and Mm. translated it to stage and around halloween uh I cast it with some of my friends and we put it on in the high school auditorium. And uh, I think that was the, the the first beginning, scratching the surface. And then a guidance counselor came to me at one point and he said, you should be in a place with other crazy people like yourself. <laughs> and I said, where, where would that be? Where is that crazy place? Can where I go there it? too? Because my bags are bagged and I'm ready. And he said, well, it's governor school, the governor school of North Carolina. Oh. And uh, there were only two books in our school library on theater. One was Archibald McLeish's JB. And another was an anthology of the best plays of 1947. And I took both of those books, checked them out, found two monologues, combined the monologues into one and auditioned for the uh, governor's school and was accepted and went for a summer, uh, which turned my life around. And while I was at governor's school, this wonderful Italian man came to speak to the uh, drama department. His name was Vittorio Giannini. He was the first chancellor of a brand new school getting ready to open in Winston-Salem. It was the North Carolina School of the Arts. It was the first school of its kind in the Western Hemisphere that taught dance, drama, music, and academics under the same roof. Wow. So I took my same audition piece and auditioned at the School of the Arts for a gentleman I didn't know at the time. His name was Sidney Blackmere. And Sidney played uh, Ruth Gordon's husband in Rosemary's Baby, the warlock, the older gentleman who's a warlock. He was in Little Caesar with Edward G. Robinson 
he was a Broadway matinee idol at one point in his life. And I auditioned for him and he came up to me afterwards and he said, it was very good young man, but you do know you played defiance on the wrong foot. And I said, um, thinking to myself, I didn't know that was a right foot or a wrong foot <laughs> yeah, for exactly, defiance. Right? So I just said, well, you know, um, I'm still a teenager, so I am not secure in my rebellion. So I'm defiant, but I'm defiant on my back foot instead of my forward foot. And he looked at me and he said, that was very good. (laughs) (laughs) He he knew I pulled that out of the air. But um, I went back to uh, my school in my hometown where I was sitting in a class in vocational agriculture. I was a future farmer of America, not by choice. That was just what you did in those days in my school. And the principal's voice came over the intercom and he said, David Wood, please come to the office. And right away, my heart went up in my throat. I couldn't figure out what I had done that he knew about. So I went over to the main building and I walked down the long corridor towards the principal's office. And at the far end of this long corridor, I saw my mother standing there. And I just, I said, oh, this is bad. This is really bad. By the Getting time I got to her. flashbacks here. Oh, yes. I was trying to figure out what they had found out. <laughs> I was ready for the blindfold and the last cigarette by the time I got to her. And I looked up and I said, mom, what's wrong? And she said, nothing. She said, you have been accepted in the School of the Arts, and this is the last time I will see you walk down this hallway. And I wanted to be here for that. So I got back to my vocational agriculture class, and my best friend looked over, and he said, what happened? And I said, I've been accepted at the School of the Arts in Winston-Salem. He said, what's that? I said, I don't know. (laughs) But it's going to be better than vocational (laughs) agriculture. (laughs) <laughs> and it was, it was. When I went to the School of the Arts, I found a square foot of space in the universe that belonged to me, and it changed my life. And I knew I was around people who shared my same love and passion, and I couldn't get enough of it. I um, I loved it. I loved it. I was there for five years, my senior year in high school and four years of college, and it was... Um, earth shattering for me it 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 just changed my life the springboard wow. huh very much a springboard into today yeah and what what you've done since golly that's just that's just incredible what a great opening and what a way to to kickstart an era yeah and to, and to to realize you know hey this is where i belong and this is what i want to do and then to to work on it, you know, and and to cultivate it through all those years, and just come up with, this is this is what I do, I perform, I write plays, I direct, I I do what I need to do, and 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 it's just incredible. So, um, of all the performances that you've done, David, do you happen to have? A favorite? That's a favorite, or, Mm. or are they all favorites in their own way, kind of thing? In their own way, they all are. I've I've often replied to that question that 
which finger of your hand is your favorite finger. I mean, you know, you use them all yeah. and they, um, the ones that stand out, uh, of course, Hamlet um, and Cyrano de Bergerac. I, I love that. Just recently playing the father with my daughter, Evan Rachel Wood, being directed by my son, Ira. Um, every production you're in is something you just give your heart and soul to. So um, it's really hard to, it's it's really hard to say. Um, yeah. 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 I, that I, makes I, a I lot of imagine, sense. You know, Each one of imagine. them is like a masterpiece, really. In yeah. fact, they are a masterpiece. They're not just like it. Well, yes, it's it's what you're doing at the moment, and that's where you live in the moment, and uh, you give everything to the to the moment. I mm -hmm. think you you want to go in heart and soul and mind and body and uh, uh, own your light. That's the thing, you know. When you walk into that light, you want to own it and give something back. I mean, I was taught in theater history so many things. Uh, but one of the things that stands out to me was the fact that there was a time that were denied Christian burials. They were outcasts. Really? Um, mm -hmm. So people have, have earned us the right to do what we do. Um, when John Wilkes Booth uh, shot President Lincoln, um, ministers railed against theater and actors from their pulpits and it was only John Wilkes brother, Edwin, who finally went back onto the stage and won back our right to walk on those boards again, because that was, that was probably the hardest thing that man ever had to do in his life, mm -hmm. was to go back on stage as Hamlet after his brother had assassinated Lincoln. And, uh, People were there to throw garbage at him. I mean, to boo him off the stage. And they started to, and he stood there and let them do it until they ran out of steam and finally stopped. And then one man in the audience started to applaud. And then everybody started to applaud. That was the moment that all of us could step back onto the stage. So people have earned us the right to do what we do. And I've never thought of theater as a dessert or a, a polite entertainment. I think it's a main course and it should get inside of you and, and, and make you think and, and make you walk out of a theater having seen you uh, on stage, to, it, feeling better about who they are and, and what the world is around them. Yeah. Um, so yes, uh, I think that's that's what we all strive for. You know, there's a wonderful story about uh, Laurence Olivier when he did Richard the mm Third, -hmm. which so many people said was just a defining uh, character in his career. You know, but he walked off stage after opening night, went into the dressing room, peeled off the prosthetic nose, and took his wig off, and he was taking the makeup off. And John Gilgood came running into his dressing room and said, Larry, Larry, my God, listen to them. They're still applauding. It's a standing ovation. My God, man, go back. Go back. You can have 20 more curtain calls if you want them. Olivier said, no. And he was taking his makeup off. And 
Gilgud said, but Larry, why? My God, man, you were Richard tonight. And Olivier turned on him and said, yes, I know it. But how do I do it again? And that's what every actor has to go to battle with. You know, you hit that jet stream one night, you breathe a little bit of the ether reserved for God himself, and you say to yourself, oh my, how am I going to do this again? And so that's what you try to do every night is reach that, that pinnacle. Yes, yes. Yeah, the pinnacle. Well, I think, you know, what acting is, it's, it's merely communication, but I think occasionally it goes a dimension deeper and becomes what I call communion. And that's when souls meet on the same wavelength. And when that happens, oh my, I mean, it's, it's incredible. It's, it's unforgettable yeah. for an actor yeah. and for an audience as well. Yeah. And you know, we were there um, after your surgery. Oh. When yes. David, when David, I mean, when Ira played, played Scrooge. Yeah, and you were in the performance, but you weren't Scrooge. No. And I am telling you, we for for the performance we were at, there was not a dry eye. And this guy right here, and the tears were just flowing. There I don't double, think there was flowing. a dry eye in that entire theater. And, that's, and that encompasses exactly what you're saying. That moment when it it grabs you by the heart, and you realize exactly what really matters. Yes, you know? and I th I think that's what we all we strive to do in in theater. Uh, we're not always successful, but boy, we we aim for the bullseye. And uh, that was a very moving time for me. Uh, I I had a brush with my own mortality, and it caused me to do a lot of soul searching. And now, um, I mean, we started a Christmas Carol in 1974. I was in my 20s. I'll be 75 next month. And uh, you're not that old. I refuse yeah. to believe that. No, nah, it's true. No. <laughs> it's true. And next year, the show will celebrate its 50th anniversary. And that will be my last year as Scrooge because I will turn the role over to my son, Ira, who's already alternating with me in the performances. I'll continue to direct as long as my health holds out. But I think at 75, it's time to hang up the top hat and the tights and, and let a younger fella <laughs> go out and hit the stage because it is a taxing role. Uh, as I said, I, I wrote it to be performed by a 20-year-old. And <laughs> so getting out there at 75 now, it's like whew, when you get off stage, it's like, man, I'm ready Austin, huh? to go home, you know. And just sit on the sofa and go, well, we defied gravity one more night. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so what gave you the idea of actually doing your own adaptation of A Christmas Carol? Well, again, I'm back at the School of the Arts. Uh, I think my second year there. And I went to see the Nutcracker Ballet, which I had never seen. I'd never seen a ballet before. And... Um, when the curtain came down, I could not get up out of my seat. I, I was just blown away by this incredible performance I'd just seen, the music, the choreography. 
and not a word was spoken. And yet you, you were wrapped in the story of Christmas and the holidays. And I remember as a wonderful party in the first act where uh, all of the children gather around the Christmas tree and they're given one gift. The boys get a drum or a trumpet and the girls got a doll baby. And I thought, they only got one present and they're ecstatic. That's wonderful, you know, because you know, we're in our day and time, the, the kids got piles of toys and they sit around going, is that all? You know, so I'm <laughs> sitting there looking at these kids just having the best time with one present. And I went, oh man, that's, if I ever get a chance, I want to be involved in a show that leaves people feeling like that. So <laughs> flash forward to, uh, 1974, uh, Theater in the Park, when we had done a season of Shakespeare, we had done uh, Romeo and Juliet, we had done Taming of the Shrew, and we got to the holiday season when all of the theaters in Raleigh, by the way, were were closed. Uh, they weren't open during Christmas. And I thought to myself, wow, I, let's open the theater. Let's do a Christmas show because Christmas is a time that families want to be together and share things together. So since William Shakespeare had not written a Christmas show, we went to the second best English author, Charles Dickens. And I said, let's do a Christmas carol. But I had definite ideas in mind. I wanted to do it in the style of the period. I wanted to make it look authentic, but I wanted to do a musical comedy because I, <clears throat> I just thought it was more accessible if people could laugh and particularly where Scrooge was concerned. I didn't want to play him as the morose, dark character that, that Charles Dickens had written. I wanted him to de delight in trying to wreck Christmas for everybody because there's a little bit of Scrooge in everybody around the holidays. I mean, television tells us everything is perfect. The turkey is perfect. The house is clean. The tree is beautiful and it's not like that i mean it's very stressful over the holidays so everybody does have a little bit of scrooge in them and i said well let's go down and pull that scrooge out and deal with him and then shed that so that when you walk out of the theater man you're ready for the holidays you feel good so i said okay that's that's the pathway into this and so uh Oh, the other thing I, I decided to do was I wanted Scrooge to carry a teddy bear in act two because I thought the kids would identify more with him. He was afraid of the dark, needed that teddy bear just like they did. And I wanted Christmas future not to be the scary skeleton of death, you know. Uh, I wanted to make him humorous, which is difficult. And I tell whoever plays that role every year, you got the hardest part in the show because you're playing death and death is not humorous. <laughs> so let's do our best. So we made him uh, a befuddled old undertaker who's trying to get Scrooge to get in the casket and just end it. <laughs> Let us, we'll take you away. And Scrooge finally says, we're going, no, no, I don't, I don't want to go. So um, we took most of the lines right out of the, the book. And I think people are surprised sometimes when they see the show at how much of the book is actually in the, in the script. Uh, 
we have added political humor, topical humor to the show because I think it makes the show relevant. And the greatest compliment we get comes from the dads because the mothers are the ones who gets the family to the theater. You know, God bless the moms. They're the ones who go in and go, all right, everybody get in the truck. We're heading to Memorial Christmas show. And the dads are going, oh, really? Oh, please. Because they know somewhere there's a Dukes of Hazard rerun on television that they'd rather see, you know. <laughs> but they get dragged in to see a, a theater play. <laughs> and then when, they, when I see them after the show, if I happen to run into a dad, it's so wonderful when they come up and they go, you know, I didn't want to see that show. But I, I tell you what, it was good. And I, I'm going back to the office. I'm going to tell everybody they need to come see this theater show because it's really good. It made me laugh. I <laughs> cried a little bit. And I'm just going, well, that's it, man. That's that's, that's why it. we do what what we do. And uh, I wanted it to be a family show. I wanted, you know, I didn't want moms and dads to drop their kids off. I didn't want it to be a babysitting service. I wanted everybody to come together. So there's, you know, there are two layers of humor. There's the the visual humor that the kids get. And then there's the humor that kind of floats out there that the adults are sure to get and laugh at. There's oh. one song, for instance, Don't You Recall, where the cast sings, Don't You Recall Your Christmas Mornings Long Ago. And I tell them every year, kids won't get that song. They won't understand. That's the song the kids will fidget in. But every adult in the audience will understand that. Because kids haven't long lived long enough to have Christmases to remember. They live in the moment. They're excited about the coming Christmas, you know. Exactly. But we have so many memories attached to Christmas. And Christmas is a bit of a depressing time to most adults because it represents a time where we are very aware of loved ones who are no longer with us. And we miss them, particularly at Christmas. Um, so we carry around a little depression that we, not, that we, we don't always recognize for what it is, but I think that's, that's what it is. And we try to recreate Christmases uh, of our, from our past. The tree goes in the same spot every year. They're the mm. decorations that come out and go in the same place. We have to recreate that past. And I think that's the brilliance of Dickens because the first ghost he meets after Marley is the ghost of Christmas past. Yes. And he has to go back and heal that hurt child that he was when he was in the boarding school mm -hmm. and he doesn't think he's going home for Christmas and he's left alone, which is a child's greatest fear that they're gonna be left alone. And his sister comes in and says, no, you're coming home, we're gonna have Christmas together. And so I think we have to go back and heal that hurt child in each of us so that we can move from our Christmas pasts into the present, celebrate it, and be brave enough to look ahead to the future and our own mortality, which reminds us to live every day to its fullest to do, as Christmas present says to Scrooge, the thing is to do the most you can 
with the time you have left on this earth to make a difference. And if we can get that message across, then we've, we've done our job. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. You oh, and good. Charles Dickens are both geniuses. <laughs> well, I don't know about me, but that man was incredible. And I must tell you that members of the Dickens family have seen the show. And uh, I have met his great, great grandchildren. In fact, I happened to be one day in the House of Mercy in Charlotte, which is a house uh, that was set up for um, AIDS patients. And this was years ago. And I was there because my mother was instrumental in starting hospice in Charlotte, North Carolina. So I went to the house and I was looking around and there on the wall was a life-size portrait of Charles Dickens. And I'm standing there going, what in the world is Charles Dickens doing in the House of Mercy in Charlotte, North Carolina? And suddenly this attractive middle-aged woman walked in in riding boots and jodhpurs. And she looked at me and she said, oh, I, I see you're, you're visiting with Charles. <laughs> and I said, well, yes, I am. Uh, my name is Ira David Wooden. Well, she introduced herself and she was married to the great-great-grandson of Charles Dickens. And I said, all right, this is, a, this is mesmerizing me. You know, why are you here in the portraits here? And she said, if Charles Dickens was alive today, he would be doing everything he possibly could to find a cure for this disease. And I said, oh, yes, yes, because he did identify diseases in England at the time. When he wrote A Christmas Carol, half of the coffins made in London were made for children. And he did so much to uh, improve working conditions for kids who were sent off to factories. And yeah. his books brought all of that to life. Uh, Tiny Tim, uh, you know, who could have died without uh, Scrooge coming in to help and that was what she said to me uh, uh one of the things i found out was she had taken uh charles dickens writing desk and she had the blueprints of it and she sent it to a furniture company in high point and they made a replica of dickens writing desk and she was auctioning it off and the money was coming into uh the house of mercy and I said, that is absolutely amazing. And she said, I would auction off the chamber pot under his bed if I could, because this is what he would be doing if he was alive today. Yeah. And when his grand, uh, great-great-grandson came to see A Christmas Carol here in Raleigh, Gerald Dickens, who was touring uh, the United States with his one-man show as Charles Dickens reading A Christmas Carol, he came to see the show, and, and a bunch of us took him out to, uh, there, there was an Irish pub in town, which was as close as we could get to an English pub. So we took Gerald there, and we're sitting there with our pints of ale, and it was a cold night, and it was just wonderful visiting with him and hearing his stories. And finally, I said, Gerald, I have to ask you, because I've been dying over here, what did you think of the show? And he said, oh, I I loved it. He said, I thought it was marvelous. He said, now, I think Charles Dickens would have had one problem with it. 
And of course, my heart went up my throat and I said, well, what is that? And he said, I think he would have wanted to play your role. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, if he was here, I would happily give it to him. Yeah, here you yeah. go. Have at yeah. it. <laughs> so, you know, occasionally we have Dickens purists who have to be taken out of the auditorium on a stretcher because they're in shock. This isn't the Dickens I know. Right. And while we do take liberties with the story, the message is the same. The, the message of transformation that we're all capable of, being better than we were, better than we are, is still the, the message. And you laugh a lot in the show, but at the end, if you, if you don't shed a few tears, I, I, you know, because you need to check it, the heart there. <laughs> everything turns. And I've said to people often, if you want to know what Christmas is, what it feels like, the tangible feeling of Christmas, I say this to the cast. When we stand on the stage at the end of the show, right before Scrooge sings his acapella verse of the first Noel, I say, I stand on the stage and hold that moment as long as I can to feel it. And sometimes I even turn up stage and I look at everybody standing on the stage behind me. I make eye contact with everybody in the cast as if to say, can you feel it? This is Christmas. Because you've laughed for an hour and a half and You've gotten to know Scrooge, you've laughed with him, you've identified the Scrooge in yourself, and suddenly when he changes and turns around and Tiny Tim is holding his hand and the little children in the show have begun to sing the song, but they get to the chorus and they turn to Scrooge and go, okay, it's your turn. And it's the first time in years that he's gone there, celebrated Christmas, had Christmas in his heart. So he starts to sing uh, Noel, mm -hmm. and he can't get through it. He bows his head and starts to weep. And the kids just come and embrace him. And he lifts himself up from that embrace, and the whole cast joins in, and we sing Noel and then Joy to the World. And those are the last two songs in the show. And I say that moment before Scrooge sings is a moment Lawrence Olivier said you couldn't get in a theater with over a thousand people, that they wouldn't sit and hold the silence. And God, thank you that Olivier lived long enough for me to meet that man and to tell him a community theater in Raleigh, North Carolina got that moment every night. And we've gotten it every night for 40 eight years and to me it is christmas and if you put your hand up it the force just pushes it back it's like the love that suddenly just rolls over that stage and hugs everybody is life affirming and life changing so um that that is where we try to get to with all of the laughter and the shtick and the, and the funny stuff is to get to that moment. And, um, and yes, so it, every, every single night, it's, it's, a, it's a healing for those of us 
in the show. When Tiny Tim is tucked into bed by Bob Cratchit during the Christmas present scene, Scrooge and Christmas present and Jacob Marley sit on Scrooge's bed and watch the scene. And I blocked it intentionally that way. And I told the lighting designers, you, you have to take the lights out on us on the bed. Everything is that bedroom and Bob Cratchit singing the lullaby to Tiny Tim. Because that's the last time that I saw my father was when he came in to tuck me in bed. And when we were writing that show, everything was done except for that song. And I sat at the piano one night with Terry Mann and J.K. Farrell. And I said, I want to write a lullaby for Bob Cratchit to sing to Tiny Tim. I want it to be the words I never got to hear. And words that any parent would want to sing to their child. So we started. And I just, one day, my son, when you're grown, you will remember all the happy times you and your dad have known. And on the day that you do, you'll know somehow I'm remembering, too, all my happy times with you. And it just flowed out. Every night, it's bittersweet for me. Sure it is. Um, it hurts because that's me and my dad. And he says good, goodbye to me every night, just like he did, without realizing that was the last time we've had. So it's a healing for me. It's, it's, I'm able to revisit that moment that changed my life and took so much away from my youth. Uh, Millet said, in a poem, childhood is a kingdom where no one dies. And when my dad died and I was 12 years old, my childhood was gone, really. And that's why I fought so hard to retreat into that world of make-believe. <clears throat> anyway, I know I've gone around my elbow to get to my thumb, but those are the reasons that I, I decided on A Christmas Carol and decided to present it the way we have always presented it. And I think we've found a wonderful combination. Uh, over 30,000 people come to see the show every year. Right. So um, they're like family. <coughs> Excuse me. I think um, I saw online that over the years, <laughs> there over 2 million people have come to see A Christmas Carol. We figured, yes, it's been around 2 million people. And the one thing I tell the cast every year is, on that first night, I said, okay, you, you're no longer a cast. We are a family. And we're going to treat each other as family. We're, we share hugs. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, I told them, I said, if we don't laugh, it won't be funny to the audience. If we don't cry, they won't cry. It has to move us first, and then we take it to them. Yeah. So they've never disappointed. And what I'm asking a, a group of volunteers to do is impossible. <laughs> and I tell them, what you going to get ready to do? It's impossible. <laughs> but... You're going to do it. You're going to change hearts and move people. And then when they walk out of the theater, they're going to be better than they were when they came in. And they're going to have a wonderful Christmas because of the gift you've given. <coughs> exactly. But I said, you know, 
the gift is always to the giver. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It's better to give than to receive. And that, and that is and that is straight up fact. Um, you know, um, <laughs> it, it's it's incredible how how much just seeing one one performance. You know, even if you weren't really thinking about it, but just how much going into one show as, as a viewer, you know, as a patron, and and watching just how much your heart gets lifted and how much you're able to really get truly into the season, you know, you know, and that's, that's the beauty of it. And if you need to step aside to get a glass of water or something, please feel free to, to step up. That's perfectly okay. Um, <laughs> but, um, but that's, that's our side of it, right? Sophie is yes. being able to, to experience and, to feel and it to feel it just like you said you know you guys feel it and we're feeling it right there with you mm -hmm. you know all the feels so yeah yeah and, and that's that, what you want it you want it to be that i mean like i said before i don't want it to be a you know a charming show put on by a lot of charming volunteers i want it to move you let's laugh let's cry otherwise what are we doing here for two hours in the dark <laughs> you know <laughs> It's it's magical what happens. It's like I said, it's healing, and um, you know we try to find a little bit of that in every production we do. You know, even when you're doing a, a show like Dracula, you know, mm -hmm. you want to move people, you want them to jump, and whoa, you know, because we <laughs> love being scared. You go on a camping trip, you you have a sleepover. What's the first thing somebody says late at night? Let's tell ghost stories. <laughs> We love it. So, you know, whether you're doing a, a heartwarming show like uh, Christmas Carol and the Father, or you're doing a heart-chilling show like Dracula or Let the Right One In, you want to move people. You want them to experience emotions and clear clear the pipes a little bit, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, like I said before we got started, Sophie and I, this is predominantly a Disney podcast. Mm -hmm. um, we started it January of 2020. So our podcast is so old, it's pre-COVID. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, um, only and, and barely pre-COVID. Barely pre-COVID. But anyway, <laughs> um, one of the things that I was really excited to hear about was when your daughter Evan was... Um, was cast in Frozen 2. And and I know um, our podcast, On the Road with Mickey, would not exist if Sophie hadn't said, yeah, I'll do the podcast with you, Daddy. You know? So, so tell me a little bit on just how big, how proud you are with the kids and, and how they're, how they're able to, to, to live out their own dreams, you know? And and in some ways, follow in your footsteps a little bit, you know, and so. Well, I don't know about that. I've, I've often said where they're concerned <laughs> to take any kind of credit. It's like running down the hill in front of a boulder, pretending you're directing its course. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> They've just uh, blossomed and come into their own. Um, Evan <clears throat> called, called me 
the day she went in to record her song. And of course, nobody knew at the time, and it was a big secret. We couldn't say right. that she couldn't was going to be a yeah. voice in a Disney movie. But she called breathlessly, excited, and Dad, I'm in, I'm on, in Disney Studios. And I went, oh my gosh, I said, this is so special. And the profundity of it hit me. And I said, you know how we listen to When You Wish Upon a Star? Someday My Prince Will Come. All of those songs from all of the Disney movies. I said, Evan, this is immortality for you. People will be listening to your voice even when you're gone from the earth. This is a very profound moment. And when you walk into that building, I hope you open your heart and your soul to everything that's going on. And And she said she walked in and well, she was going down the corridor and she she said, these were, there were cells, cartoon cells on the walls. These priceless cells, Pinocchio and Peter Pan. And she said, and there was Walt's office restored. And she said, finally, she said, I I got lost just in wonderment. And finally, one of the guys came out and went, uh, Evan, when you get a moment. (laughs) (laughs) We need you over here. (laughs) (laughs) So she went in and just centered herself as she has amazed me so often being able to do and sang that song. And when she finished, she got a standing ovation in the studio. Everybody just applauded. And then later, uh, when the movie came out, uh, my wife and I and my youngest son snuck in to the back of the theater one night to see it. And it just, I lost it. I mean, when I heard her sing, it was just so beautiful. And um, her adventures in in meeting everybody who was in the cast, who voiced characters and all of that. And the fact that my grandson got to go, you know, uh, and meet the people whose voices he heard, you know, and... um, He kind of takes it in stride now, you know. He knows all of the yeah. characters. You know. But I don't know. When I, you know, when I was younger, growing up, I don't care where we were in the neighborhood playing. It was on a Sunday night. Uh, uh, over the weekend, you you were always back in the house when the Wonderful World of Disney came on, and of course we saw the Wonderful World of Disney. And- black and white most of the time one family in my hometown got a color television and it must have been 20 of us kids crowded in the living room one night to watch the wonderful world of color in color and it, it was amazing and i told ira and evan when they were growing up i said you have to understand we didn't have video recorders tivo we now you can push a button and see Disney anytime you want. We had to wait until they reissued Pinocchio or Bambi. <laughs> One of the most traumatic movies in my life. Bambi. Oh my gosh. 
and the rats and lady and the tramp frightened me. I mean, the rats with their pink eyes running around. I mean, Disney had a profound effect on our generation uh, because of those indelible things that just got implanted and, you know, part of us. And of course, and you all know this because of the way you feel, but the first time you walk into Disneyland or Disney World, it's like, oh, oh my gosh, it's all real. <laughs> it it we, really is real. We talked about that yes. last week. That last was week, our topic. We were, who, we were talking about who, I'm sorry, Sophie, for interrupting. Yeah. You go ahead. Yeah, the topic last week, sorry, I wanted to speak. I've been listening so much. It was like, I want to make sure I'm here too. Uh, last week's topic was the topic of who first introduced us to Disney and obviously from my answer was my dad I didn't say I was introduced in it, into it I was born into it, into it. yeah and yeah. his his answer was his grandparents so it was a generational thing coming and the best way we can describe it is a bubble it's a bubble and once you pass through that barrier Florida does not exist it's a world of make-believe and it's wonderful almost as wonderful as theater <laughs> well it's, it is theater i think you know that's exactly the way disney approaches the design for it i mean it's also theatrical and it's all a lesson in applied psychology you know that turning this way and seeing this visual image stimulates something in us and that's the brilliance of the Imagineers who put that thing together. Um, the perspective, the colors. I mean, there's so many things that go into one little part of the whole. Uh, and when you realize the magnitude of detail that yeah. went into the design, it's just amazing. And that Walt had so much of that in his brain. I mean, that that one man could come up with so much of that and inspire the people who worked for him, who adored him, you know, because he just loved people. And, uh, you know, and I, I love hearing them talk. You know, one of the Imagineers said that was one time we asked Walt how tall Mickey Mouse was. And he, he said he put his hand down and we realized that was that was the only time Walt ever told anybody how tall Mickey Mouse was and they were there, you know. So you think about all of those those moments and what he gave to the world and the difference that it still makes. Yeah, it's quite amazing. And I, you know, I was sharing with you all before uh, we started taping that my brother-in-law is a former Disney Imagineer and he has, oh my gosh, I could listen to him forever when he talks about um, working there. And uh, we would, a couple of years ago, we took my youngest son back. We told him, we said, okay, when you get young enough, we're making the, the pilgrimage. So uh, we went, took the train. That, that was so neat. We uh, trained down to uh, Orlando and you leave Raleigh and it's an overnight trip. So we got two sleeper compartments, one for him, one for my wife and I. 
we said, okay, we're just going to make it a magical trip. So we went to bed and you wake up and there you are, you know, and the car's there to take you to um, your hotel right there. And my uh, brother-in-law was our guide. So you can't ask for better than that. I mean, we were having breakfast one day and it was in the restaurant where I, I, I guess the restaurant revolves and you the see the farm. Yes, you the see the farm grill. scene and all of that. Yep. Well, That's we were having breakfast. We were having breakfast, and the farmhouse is slowly going by, and I'm looking at the detail, and there's a little whirly gig hanging on the side of the house. I mean, tiny a little bit, you know. But I saw it, and I turned to him, and I went, "Oh my gosh." Look at that. I mean, the detail on this thing, that whirly gig. And he looked over at me and said, David, that was my whirly gig when I was a child. Nice. Oh, my gosh. He said, I put it there. And I went, what? He said, look over there. You see that doorway? And I said, yeah. He said, that was my office. Oh, wow. So, and and he was one of the designers on the Swiss Family Robinson Treehouse. And I spent Every day we were in that park embarrassing him. I know because I, <laughs> I would walk in front of him or behind him. And whenever somebody would see something that I knew he had designed and he had pointed out the things that he had been part of designing. And they would say, oh, I love this or I love that. You know, and I go, did you love that? Thank that man right there. <laughs> and he would go, oh, please. And I go, no, you should be thanked. These yeah. people should know because, I mean, this is special to yeah. meet somebody who, who helped design this to make dreams come true. Exactly. And I, it's not just for littles, it's for biggles. We, we come into that park with so much baggage, you know, because and we've grown up with Disney. I mean, we've laughed and we've cried with all those characters and suddenly there they are and they don't break character and... Oh, I remember when we took Evan and Ira and they were small and Evan didn't feel good one day and we were having breakfast and she was kind of sitting there a little gloomy and we were having a character breakfast. So all the characters were there. And I mean, Cinderella and Snow White just went over. Goofy gave her a hug. I don't know how they knew, except they just saw that she was, the light was a little dim, you know. And they just went over and hugged her and loved her. And of course, there are no words because they don't speak. So it's all in the gesture. And she just came to life. So, um, yeah, it's it's a special experience. And Disney has been such a part of my life. And through his the movies, <clears throat> I learned a lot about theater, actually, how to how to present things. Um, how to get that exciting tension going. <clears throat> and uh, I can remember the artwork to this day and the little golden books that I read when I was a child. The Donald Duck's world, his trees and the hillside, <clears throat> those panoramas just have embedded themselves into my memory. Um, I, I think... <clears throat> When I finally die, if I go to heaven, that's what it's going to look like. 
know, and I'll be a happy camper. Yeah. I <laughs> feel that. I feel that on such an emotional level because I've always <laughs> wanted to be inside Winnie the Pooh's treehouse. I just want to know what it looks like. If I could live there, I would. Yeah. It's just, they're immersive and they're wonderfully made. It's magic in its most basic form. It is. It is. And tangible magic. You know, it's always wonderful to have dreams. It's even more wonderful to see a dream become a reality. Yes. So that you can actually reach out and touch it and go, yes, yes, it does exist. And it is the happiest place on earth, you know, because it's a place where dreams are realized. And you can't put that many people together in one space where so much magic is happening and so much love is being shared and not have a corner of the world that is remarkable in its ability to change lives and touch hearts. So the beauty of Disney, whichever park you're at, is you are able to set yourself aside, set aside the adultness of it, and you're able to recapture the youth that you that you may remember as a child of doing this or doing that. And you're able to just, you know, re, re, rekindle that in you, yeah. you know, yeah. for, for however long you're there. And, and hopefully it impacts you enough that that child can move on with you back home and, and still be a part of you when you get back home, you know. That's true. I can yes. <clears throat> I can hear a song. Um, when you wish upon a star, I can remember the seat in the theater I was sitting in. I can remember the smell of popcorn. I can remember it. That moment is indelible in my mind. So all I have to do is listen to that song. And I'm that kid again, sitting in that dark theater, watching this amazing animated story come to life. Um, yeah. Uh, it takes us back, those of us of a certain age, <laughs> it takes us back to our our youth. It takes us back to those days when life did seem simpler and um, uh, childhood was, was a kingdom where nobody died and we were safe and secure there. So I think that's one of the reasons we love to go back because we are allowed to touch our past again and continue to heal uh, anything that was hurt there. And when we walk out, we're stronger people, I think, more resilient, I hope, you know, and that's, that's what good theater does. And, and Disney knew good theater. Yes. He, he it and, and took chances to do it when people told him he was crazy that nobody was going to sit and watch a full length cartoon. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, again, it's, right? often, <laughs> yeah. And it's often said of him, you know, he said that the rest of the world was looking through glasses all the time. He had 2020 vision, you know, he, he saw what was possible. And isn't that, isn't that what so many of our dreamers who've changed the world have done? They've, they've seen what's possible. And they 
they didn't stand on the edge of their dreams. They went after them and they made them happen. And I think, and I've said this often to young people who want to have a career in the theater, that one of the few things we can choose as artists is where we take our stand. And, uh, you know, which is one reason I took my stand here in Raleigh. I've never regretted it. And um, it's been a fulfillment of a dream for me. I've watched my children grow up in the theater too. I've never, I never tried to push them into it, but my gosh, I mean, they're, they're with me 24 seven. So what, you know, Evan and I are grew up at night. Um, they, they were in sleeping bags in the prop room that overlooked the stage. And, um, the babysitter was sitting in there with him. I remember, uh, we were doing Shakespeare's Othello. And their mother was playing Desdemona. I was playing Iago. And of course, Othello um, strangles Desdemona every night. So Evan and Ira would wake up in the prop room. The door was open. They could see the stage. They would wake up and watch their mother being strangled. And they turned to each other and said, Mom died really well tonight. (laughs) And then they'd go back to sleep. So... Uh, they, in a very real way, the theater was their playroom. And I do remember walking by an open door, looking into the performance space one day when Evan was very young, five, six, maybe. And they were setting lights for a show and she just went up and sat on a little stool on the stage and she was making up a monologue and she was just talking and, you know, performing in her light and I stood in the doorway and I went oh my she is to the manner born I think I've got an actress on my hands yep and Ira's the same way he's he's grown into such an incredible young man he's now artistic director at the theater um and I'm you know turning it over to him and he's amazing in what he's learned and and been able to accomplish. And um, I hope, and I think he's happy here. You know, I think um, people say to me, you know, why didn't you go to New York? Why didn't you go to L.A.? You could have had a career in those places. And I said, yeah, why? You go to New York, you go to L.A., and and uh, you ask them for... Um, uh, uh, oh gosh, what did I say? Uh, a ham bone, uh, a ham hock. Yeah, I said, you go to any of those places, you ask them for a ham hock, they send you to a pawn shop. I, I said, you know, look, <laughs> Raleigh, the South has been home for me. I'm, I'm comfortable here and I've made my stand here and I think and I hope I've made a difference and I hope maybe, well, I do know that there are young people who've come through our doors, who've now gone on to their careers in, in this business. I mean, uh, a Christmas Carol this year is going to be, our version is going to be performed in Fort Worth, Texas at uh, the theater called Casa Manana. And the producer of that theater who asked to do our version was our very first Tiny Tim, Wally Jones. So he will be producing our version of a Christmas Carol this year. And that's, you know, that's, that's cool. wonderful to, to see 
that now they are out changing lives. They're making a difference. Frankie Muniz, Malcolm in the Middle, you know, he was our tiny Tim. Uh, Michael C. Hall, a Dexter, you know, was our Peter Cratchit. Uh, Lauren Kennedy is back now, you know, with her own theater here in Raleigh. She came through the doors as a kid. So I, I look... I look back and I see these kids grown up now and I kind of go, yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's good. I can put my head on my pillow at night and go to sleep feeling justified. We, we did good. We made a difference. Yeah. You, yes. you know, you mentioned to Evan how her song for the, for frozen two is immortality for her for years, yeah. even after she's gone. Well, the same thing here. You know, with with the Christmas Carol, that's that's your legacy passing along. You know, well, that's true. I, you know, of course, the difference is, I I told Evan, I said they will hear your voice. I mean, your voice will be alive. Theater is different. Theater is like footprints in the sand. We live for a night, the curtain comes down, and what you've seen is over. It won't happen again. Even though we're doing the same show the next afternoon or the next evening, it's going to be a little different. So um, that's what we do, I think, in theater. We leave footprints in the sand, but they're good footprints, but we know they're not going to, you know, they're not going to yeah. last. Where they live is in people's memories, in people's hearts. Yeah, and exactly. that's, that's a good thought to think um, that after I'm gone, even, you know, people will say, I remember going to that show when I was little and, I went into a restaurant the other night and the bartender handed me a drink. He said, it's on the house. <laughs> I said, well, thank you. But why? He said, I saw a Christmas Carol when I was a kid. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Here's a drink. I just, so every now and then, um, Oh, I do have to tell you, that was one story that blew me away. Uh, one time in my life, I went to China <laughs> and, um, I was in Beijing. I was touring the uh, Forbidden City. Uh -huh. Lucky I want to go there. Oh, my gosh. This, this thing is just unbelievable. It's, it's like walking into Disney. It's, it's just breathtaking. And I'm standing there looking at this temple, one of three big temples that you go through in stages to finally get to the throne room. And I'm standing there taking it all in, and there's a couple from the states standing next to me and they look over at me and one says are you Ebenezer Scrooge and I, <laughs> nice I said I don't believe this I mean all the way in Beijing China <laughs> um and and one other story oh I love this story too it was it was so fun uh Evan and her husband at the time Jamie Bell uh and I were uh, in New York and we had gone up to visit them and we were hungry. So we decided to go to an Italian restaurant and have dinner. And we found this Italian restaurant that was really up and coming. It was going to be the, the place to go. And we happened to get there right before it really went crazy. But it was still packed and they had to seat us at the counter, which was fine. So Jamie Bell sitting on one side, Evan sitting on the other, and we're enjoying a meal. And I happened to glance down and I saw this lady 
kind of leaning and looking, you know. And I, I just said, well, I think the cover's blowing you all. I think you've been recognized. And this lady kept peering at, you know, us at the counter. And I looked and I said, oh, yep, she's getting up. She's heading this way. And the lady walked up and, of course, Jamie and Evan kind of get ready to receive company. And the lady walks up. She goes, are you Ebenezer Scrooge? <laughs> Didn't know and them from up. Adam and Eve, right? <laughs> oh, man, I just got up. I went, thank you. I said, you are getting free tickets to the show this year. I said, you have made my trip to New York. <laughs> Sitting here in between Jamie Bell and uh, uh, Evan Rachel. Who <laughs> would I'm the one that gets recognized? And, of course, they loved it. They just yeah. died laughing. And they went, well, we are in the presence of greatness. Exactly, today. right? <laughs> You're like, they kids, were right. kids, don't forget this moment. <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh, gosh. Well, Sophie, do you have any last questions for David? My one last thing. Um, and this is one that is just completely out of the blue, but it was kind of like a footnote almost. Uh, and this is one that my dad told me about. It was your production of The Lost Colony. I've never heard of that, and I want to learn about it because you're in it. So could you maybe give a few words on what you did with that production? The Lost Colony was written by a North Carolina native, Paul Green, who won a Pulitzer Prize for In Abraham's Bosom. The Lost Colony is the oldest outdoor drama in the country. Wow. And it is presented every summer on uh, Roanoke Island, down on our coast, near Nags Head, in the town of Manteo. And I was lucky enough to go to the Lost Colony when I was in college. I was asked to come and play the role of Sir Walter Raleigh which I did. I played Sir Walter for two summers, and then I played the comic uh, lead. His name is Old Tom Harris. Um, and they were four of the best summers of my life. I had never spent a summer by the ocean, and I was able to do that and go to work uh, six nights a week under the stars and perform this beautiful, beautiful outdoor drama. Uh, Flash forward, and in 2013, uh, I was asked to come back and direct the show, which was a huge honor because the colony uh, meant so much to me, and to be able to go back and put something back uh, was very important. So I was there for seven years as the artistic director for the show, and... Um, Decided after seven years, you know, that was that was good enough for me. I had repaid that debt. Um, and uh, it's still going on every summer. And uh, if you ever get a chance, you should, uh, you know, and you're in that area, and which is a, an amazing place, you know, <clears throat> from the theater. You can look across the Roanoke Sound and see in the distance the tiny light on the Wright Brothers Monument where the first powered flight took off wow. and uh, there's a great I have a great little story about that uh, when Neil Armstrong 
landed on the moon. Uh, I took my girlfriend and another couple of uh, friends of ours who were in the show. We drove over to the beach. We had dinner. We bought three bottles of champagne and we drove to the Wright Brothers Monument. Do you know how many years passed from the first powered flight till the night we landed on the moon? I do not. 60 years. 60 years from that first little putt-putt powered flight to landing on the moon. So the Park Service put televisions out in the visitor center. And we took our champagne, popped it, poured glasses. And from where we were standing, you could see the monument, the Wright Brothers Monument, and right behind it, the moon was hanging low in the sky. And so we could see the TV sets. And the first moment the Armstrong set foot on the moon, we were standing in the in the spot where the Wright brothers had taken off, and that was a special, special time. Uh, yeah. And again, one of those moments that really crystallizes things in in your brain and in your soul and your heart, where you realize the incredible things man is capable of when we put our hearts and souls together for a common cause. Yeah. And gosh, we need that today. Oh, don't we? We need to come together as, uh, just like uh, uh, Christmas present says, we're one family on a globe that's growing smaller every day. We need to think of ourselves as a family. It's so easy to point out our differences. That doesn't take a rocket scientist. It's the commonalities. It's the things that bring us together. Disney knew that. Yes. Disney, Disney World, Disneyland. That's what they do. They bring us together as one family. You know, it's a small world after all. So, you know, they are universal messages all around and we need to pick up on them. And uh, I think we need to return to those values. We need them in the world today. Well, David, thank you so much. Uh, Yes, thank you again. Um, Sophie, do you want to do your This Day in Disney History? We, We do a This Day in Disney History segment every week. Yes, I think Sophie is a huge history buff. So you've been right up her alley as far as some of the The entire time listening to you talk is like it's like a a it's like a sponge soaking up a huge bucket (laughs) of water. I loved it. I loved it all. And if you would like to stay, I do have a question for you, sir. So obviously we know you're into theater. Uh, Have you ever heard of an opera called Ida? Yes. Yes. What are your opinions on it? <sighs> Opera blows me away. Uh, the music, I think, is familiar to most people, even though they may not identify the opera itself. It's like, well, Disney's Night on Ball Mountain. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, we know that music. It's like the storm from uh, William Tell's Overture. We hear music and it's familiar to us. Uh, but sometimes we don't know its source, you yes. know, where it comes from. But opera, my gosh, you talk about um, bold, wonderful, vivid colors. That's what you get with opera. Just Absolutely. 
Well, this one is something that I picked specifically because it was theatrical and it's not very related to Disney. I tend to focus on Disney history, but it's closely related because Disney made an, a Broadway adaptation of the opera Ida and it was released in 1998. But speaking today, October 10th, back in way, way long ago in 1813, this day is disputed by most historians as the day either today, the October 10th, or yesterday, October 9th. It is disputed but believed by most historians that the opera composer, Giuseppe Verde, who composed Ida, was born in the village of Le Roncol, Duchy of Parma, on this day. Nice. Yes. Verde. Mm -hmm. And we are very glad he was born. Yes, we are. <laughs> you, sir, are a genius. I love your puns. I love your jokes. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I've loved my time with both of you today. It's been very special, and I, I love you both and appreciate you for letting me rattle on. Oh, oh no, it was wonderful to our, listen. It's been our pleasure. And the last thing I've got is a last little very tiny Walt Disney quote. We call it a little bit of Walt. A little bit of Walt. And um, normally Brenda will perform this, but today um, I think the quote I've selected is perfect um, for the guests that we have. And the quote from Walt Disney was, whatever you do, do it well. And my friend David, I think Sophie and I and everyone that has ever seen one of your plays, one of your performances, would agree. Yes. What you have done, you have done very well. So, thank you. Yes. Thank you so much for joining us today. We have had so much fun. So and have I. It has been our honor and our privilege to have you here. So, so thank you so much. And you know what? We're going to work real hard to make sure that we see you on the stage for a Christmas Carol in the season. So. Yes, so please. Look for us. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't look okay, for us. Right, right. Do what you got to do, but we'll be looking for you. Yeah, oh, yeah. you'll let us? <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you. We'd love to see you both. All right. Well, you take care, and thanks Thank for you. joining us. And we will see everyone on the road. We'll see you on the road. Have a good day, everyone. Safe Bye. travels. Bye.